Welcome, everybody, to all of our campuses meeting throughout the Twin Cities today. So glad you made it to church. It's an honor for me to be with you. I also want to welcome those of you who are watching and joining us online today as a part of our congregation. We know you're out there and joining us today, so welcome to you as well. Uh, Happy New Year, everybody. I hope 2018 was was great, great for you, but I hope that 2019 will be the best year of your life, and you might be thinking about one thing that you could do to change to make 2019 even better than last year, so welcome, everybody. Uh, Before we dive in, as you saw on that video uh, just a minute ago, we as a church last fall, we challenged you to raise $25 million to put a new campus on the west side of the Twin Cities out in the Wyzetta area. And you all responded in a tremendous way. We're not quite there yet, but I want to show you where our commitments are at this point. We're at $20.5 million, and I think we ought to applaud that. I really do. Uh, this, actually, this actually is unprecedented to be at this number just eight weeks into this. If you think about it, eight weeks ago, we had zero dollars committed to this, and now we're over $20 million committed to putting in a new campus out there in the Wyzetta West Side of the Twin Cities area. So way to go. Those of you who have made a commitment, I am so proud of you, and you understand what we're trying to do. It's all about reaching one person at a time. That person could be your dad. That person could be your son or daughter or a friend or coworker of yours. That's what this is all about. Uh, Just last Christmas, two weekends or three weekends ago, I forget how long ago it was, there were 59,880 people who came to one of our campuses. We know, I mean, this, this number just scares me, actually. And 869 people over the holiday season in the next week or so said yes to Christ, made a decision to follow Christ. And this is what this church is all about. And if if you made a commitment to following Christ, we've been praying for you. Uh, This is the best decision that you've ever made in your life. And then last weekend was our highest non-holiday attended weekend in the history of our church. 27,180 people came to services last weekend. And then out in Wyzetta, you know, nine months ago, there was nobody attending one of our campuses. And now in Wyzetta last weekend, our third highest attendance ever, 1,404 people. So we want to do something on the west side. If you haven't made a commitment to the campaign yet or to what God is doing, man, don't, don't let this pass you by. Be a part of something bigger than yourself and, and see God go to work so you can celebrate with the rest of us. But today, uh, we continue our series called Imperfect Together because I don't know if you've noticed, but people are imperfect and somewhat annoying. Every human being is imperfect. We have imperfect parents, don't we? There's not a single parent who's perfect. We have imperfect children. Boy, are they imperfect. We have imperfect siblings. And did you notice that over the holidays, how imperfect people are? And how many of you noticed that of all the people in your family, you're the most normal? (laughs) Did you notice that? Everyone else is riding the crazy train, but somehow you turned out. By the way, if you're the only one who thinks that in your family, you might want to rethink that a little bit, (laughs) if you're the only one who you think is normal. But everybody's imperfect. And that's really important to acknowledge because if you're looking for a perfect roommate, if you're looking for a perfect spouse, friend, or coworker, you will be looking for a very long time because those people simply do not exist. If you are expecting perfection, 
You're going to bounce from friend to friend, spouse to spouse, job to job, and end up being discouraged and alone if you're looking for perfection. It's a lot like my brand new gloves. I absolutely love my brand new favorite gloves. Love these things. They're durable. They're soft. I wear them everywhere. Everywhere. I was actually on my way to work a couple months ago, and I saw these gloves on the side of the road uh, near a gas station where we live, and they were flattened like a pancake because about 20 cars and trucks had run over them. You almost couldn't tell they were gloves. But I thought to myself, I just made a note, if they're still there when I get home after work, I'm going to stop and pick them up. And sure enough, nine hours later, I remembered it. They were right where they were, flatter than they were before, They were all dirty, grimy. Who knows what germy hands had been in them, but what a find. (laughs) I love these things. So if anybody lost a pair of Wells Lamont gloves near the Holiday Station on 61 in Portland, thank you. (laughs) They fit me perfectly. Now, gang, they're not perfect. They're not perfect. They're dirty, grimy. They're well-worn. But man, they're soft, they're warm, and they fit me. I love that. And aren't those the best kind of relationships? I'm telling you, the best marriages, families, and friendships are not perfect. They're warm, they're soft, they're well-worn, and they fit you. They're what we call imperfect together. That's what this series is about. Last week, Jason said that all good relationships learn to develop intimacy where you feel safe and secure with each other. If you're in a relationship and you feel safe and secure and there's warmth and tenderness, nothing beats it. Today's message is called Have Crucial Conversations. This is so important today. Glad you're here because every relationship has conflict. Everyone. And in order for our relationships to survive and thrive, you're going to have to have some crucial conversations to work through the conflicts that every relationship has. Now, most conversations are not crucial. You know, they're casual about homework, dinner plans, the weather, whatever. But there will be several times in every person's life where you're going to have a crucial conversation Maybe with your spouse if you're married, or a friend, parent, teenager, with a 20-something son or daughter, coworker or boss. In their book, Crucial Conversations, the authors define it as this. It's a discussion between two or more people where the stakes are high. It's a really important discussion. Opinions vary, so there's differing opinions, and emotions run really strong. So they're high stakes, emotionally charged issues. Thought about some examples of crucial conversations. It's when you may need to end a relationship, ask a friend to repay a loan, give your boss feedback about his or her behavior. That's always fun. Address custody or visitation issues with an ex-spouse, crucial conversation. Deal with a rebellious or troubled Teen parents, if you have a troubled or rebellious teen, you may need to have a crucial conversation or several of them, or to confront a loved one about substance abuse, give an unfavorable performance review, 
Ask the in-laws to quit interfering. <laughs> Terminate an employee. Talk to a neighbor about their dog. I hope my neighbors don't talk to me about my dog. This, I'm not giving you permission. Or their property line. Or discuss problems concerning sexual intimacy. Now, as I was going through this list, some of you felt a surge of emotion that contains some anxiety or even some anger. That's because crucial conversations are emotionally charged and why most people avoid them. Because we know if we bring the issue up, there's gonna be conflict and even some pain. So what do most of us do? We avoid them at all costs. And we live with the ongoing frustration that unresolved problems create. But author Scott Peck says that when we avoid discussing problems, hurts happen but never get healed. Offenses occur but never get resolved. The only cure, he says, is chaos. Where hurts are talked about, hostilities revealed, and truth gets told. Peck says the only cure to resolving problems and entering these conversations is chaos. Because when someone finds the courage to speak the truth, what usually happens is chaos and more conflict, which is why we try to avoid them and hate doing it. But it's the only way to resolution. The authors of Crucial Conversations found that people who have the best relationships learn how to do this well. They know how to confront a boss without committing relational suicide. They know how to raise a touchy subject with their spouse or friend without blowing up the relationship. How do they do it? Well, the Bible actually gives a very short answer. The Bible says, learn to speak the truth in love. This is unbelievable. In fact, the gospel writer John, one of Jesus' closest friends, says this about Jesus. Jesus was full of truth and love. Truth and grace is the word that the text uses, but it's another word for love. Now you think of this. Jesus was full of two things. The most perfect example of humanity was filled with truth and love. Not one or the other, but 100% truth and 100% love. This is so important because some people are 100% truth and they just hammer people with the truth, without much love, and they leave folks bruised and bleeding. Other people are 100% love without any truth. And so they never confront sin. They never call out bad behavior. They say, well, just come together and love everybody. How do you do that when someone's trying to kill you? How do you just come together and love everybody when somebody's trying to hurt you, abuse you, steal from you? You can't. All truth with no love is damaging. All love with no truth is very dangerous. Jesus said, look, live your lives with 100% truth and 100% love where you're truthful about the problem but as loving as, as you can possibly be toward the person. Brilliant. 
Uh, several years ago, I was speaking on the same topic. I, it was actually Memorial Day Monday, so I was alone in the office trying to get a, a hit on my message, and my mind was filled with this notion of truth and love, and about noon, I walked out of my office, down the, down the stairway, I pushed open the door to the stairwell, and there sitting on the carpet was a tiny little mouse, about half the size of a normal size mouse, and I don't like mice. I have no room for mice. They're dirty, they're diseased, they're sinful. Mice are. They, you know, living in fields is fine for mice, that's where they belong, but when they sneak into our building, it's time for some hard truth. But I'm telling you, this mouse just sat there looking up at me. I could actually see its whiskers, and it was squeaking. But my immediate thought was to just step on him, squash him, let him experience the full weight of truth. So I lifted my foot. I actually did just lifted my foot to flatten him. But then I thought, wait a minute, Bob. What about love? What about, what about mercy? And for the first time in my life, I think, I showed love to a mouse and I let him live. But I also gave him some truth. How do you give truth to a mouse? True story. You pick him up by the tail, you open the door, you toss him. Five seconds later, he experienced some truth. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus always responded with love and truth. So to the woman who was caught in adultery, Jesus said this to her, look, I forgive you, that's love. Now go and sin no more, that's truth. I run into people all the time who give one or the other. Some just want to give love. Just love everybody. And they never confront sin. They never take a stand. They never tell the truth. Let the mice run all over the building because they think that's love. That's not love. That's mush. That's stupid. That's an abuse of love. Now, here, here's what typically happens when there's a high-stakes, emotionally charged issue that comes up between two people, okay? Instead of truth and love, here's what a lot of us do. We, we go one or two ways. We either go silent or we go violent. A lot of us, when there's a, a highly charged, important issue, we just bury it. Avoid this at all costs. Avoid the person, the issue, because if we bring it up, there's going to be chaos, conflict. Others of us go violent. We get angry, we get irritable, we say verbally hurtful things. And sometimes we do both. We hold it in so long until we just explode all over the person. I want to pause and just ask a question. Those of you who go silent, how's that working for you in your relationships? How's your blood pressure? When you just stuff it and live with this misbehavior until it becomes so cancerous, you don't know what to do. How's that working for you? Or those of you who go violent, how's that working for you? in your relationships? What's it like when you see people 
uh-oh, here he comes, here she comes, and they just bail. They, they avoid you because they don't want to deal with your volatility. Proverbs has a verse for this. A kind man, a kind person benefits himself. Look at that. A kind person benefits himself. But a cruel person brings trouble on themselves. There's a, there's a third option, and that's to speak the truth in love. Where you tell the truth about what's troubling you, but you do it in a way that's kind. Really hard to do. So I'm facing a crucial conversation that's high stakes, emotionally charged. I want to go in with truth and love. There's actually three conversations you have to have. The first one is with God. God, I need your help. I need your wisdom. I'm going to bring this to you in prayer. That's the first conversation. The second conversation is with yourself. This is so important. The question you need to ask yourself is this. Is my motive to help or hurt? What are my motives? Do I really want to help or hurt this situation? If your motive is to punish the other person and make them suffer, your conversation is doomed from the start. About 14 years ago, our church board had to have a crucial conversation with me about my relating patterns. The church was growing fast. I was so stressed, running so fast, I began treating my staff poorly and saying things that were hurtful uh, frequently, but I was, I was unaware of this because I was just going mock, mock two. So the board decided to make me aware of my patterns, and I will never forget the night when the board was gathered in our boardroom and board member Dean Hager took out a six-page, single-spaced document that he read to me in front of the entire board, and it was filled with truth, hard truth, truth that hit me right between the eyes. But it was so loving that I knew that Dean was for me. He had also won my trust through many years of friendship, so I knew that Dean loved me. I can tell you that that letter probably saved my career 14 years ago. It certainly brought healing to my relationships. To this day, I, I credit Dean Hager and thank him for making me a better man. It took me a full year of counseling after that meeting to overcome some of my issues, but that crucial conversation saved my life. I have since had to write a couple letters like that to people that I care about, and I spend days writing these documents, these letters, because when you have a crucial conversation, you have to make sure that every word is written with truth and love. So the second conversation is with yourself. Have you prayed about it? Are your motives right? Not to destroy the other person, but to speak truth in a way that they feel loved and respected. But the third conversation now is with the other person. <clears throat> and I've not mastered this. I'm, I'm trying to get better because my natural tendency is to either go silent or violent. That's my natural tendency. You know, I either want to avoid this person or just verbally let them have it. 
So I have to check that. I have to say, whoa, Bob, wait a minute, time out. You gotta pray about this, you gotta get your spirit straight, you gotta get your facts straight in order to have this conversation. But here now are seven suggestions that have helped me have these conversations, and here, I'm just gonna give them to you. The first one is to write it down. I write these things down word for word because emotions kick in and I start saying things I shouldn't, so I wanna get it right. Uh, I don't want my emotions to hijack my message, so oftentimes I'll write the whole thing down. Not always. Sometimes I have a conversation with a family member or whatever, and I don't write it all down, but a lot of times when it's really crucial, I write it down. Second, I let another person read this document before I share it with, another, with the person we're, we're having a, a problem with. Again, my emotions can cloud my judgment, so before this conversation, I always ask another person to read what I've written to make sure that truth will be commuted accurately and in love. I almost never have one of these conversations alone. Almost always there's a third party with me. Third thing, make honest judgments without being judgmental. Now, you gotta, this is, Jesus once said, look, don't judge lest you be judged. That is one of the most misapplied verses in the Bible. She said, don't judge lest you receive judgment. And so a lot of us say, well, we better not make a judgment. Better not, better not use our brain. Better not make a judgment about anything. Well, that's so untrue. Because just a few verses later, you know, don't judge lest you be judged. But then he says, but don't cast pearls of wisdom before a swine. How do you know someone's a swine unless you make a judgment? So he's not saying, don't ever make wise judgments. That'd be foolish. You have to make wise judgments every single day about money, work, problems, people. But do it in a way without being judgmental. There's a big difference between making wise judgments about people's behavior, which you have to do, and having a spirit of judgmentalism. Big difference. So Dallas Willard, brilliant thinker. We must train ourselves to hold people responsible for their failures without attacking their worth. As human beings, I'm telling you, one of the most loving things you can do is make wise judgments about bad behavior without having a spirit of judgmentalism. Huge. And it's very difficult. Because how do you confront your father's profanity without calling him a jerk? How do you address poor performance in an employee without making it feel personal? How do you tell a friend that her emotional affair is gonna destroy her without making it feel judgmental? How do you confront your son or daughter's poor choices without devaluing them as a person? Here's how you do it. You make wise judgments about their behavior without degrading them as a person. Fourth, you gotta discern if this person is a swine or not. I love this point, so important. Jesus said, look, don't cast pearls before swine, swine-like people, where it'll just be trampled. Don't cast pearls of wisdom before swine. What he meant is that some people are so dishonest 
Some people are so manipulative, so blind to their sin, that even if you did speak truth to them, they would just trample all over it. And so you have to discern if this person can even handle a crucial conversation, or are they so dishonest, so volatile, so incapable that you would be wasting your time. And by the way, sometimes it takes years to figure this out about this person. There are some people, sadly, who simply won't receive the truth. And unless they get counseling and do the hard work of overcoming their patterns of dysfunction, a crucial conversation from you is, is useless. So you shouldn't even try, honestly. Don't cast pearls before swine. So when you're dealing with a fool, I love what, I love what Henry Cloud says about this. He says, sometimes when you're dealing with a fool, you need to bring a necessary ending to the relationship. He says, look, fools don't change. Fools don't take correction. Fools don't take responsibility and don't adjust to the truth. Instead, they skew the facts. You know anybody like this? I do. They skew the facts and rewrite history to justify their behavior. So when you're dealing with a fool, make a wise judgment about that and bring a necessary ending to that relationship. But if they're not a fool... There's three more things that you should do. Number five, affirm the relationship first and then speak the truth. This is where Jesus' uh, example with the woman who was caught in adultery is just so brilliant. You know, so the Pharisees, these religious, righteous people who Jesus was so hard on because they were so fake. Uh, these, these Pharisees dragged this woman out into the public square Right in front of Jesus, they caught her in the act of adultery, so she's half naked, and they want Jesus to condemn her and stone her. And the first thing Jesus said to her, I don't condemn you. He affirmed her. He affirmed his love for her, his care for her. He assured her that he was for her and didn't condemn her. And didn't condemn her. But then he did tell her the truth about her sin. Jesus always let people know he cared about them before he told them the truth. Next, make sure it's the right time and place to have this conversation. Jesus waited until all the Pharisees dispersed before he confronted this woman's sin. Timing is so important. Sometimes I will wait weeks for just the right time to have this conversation. And usually they're so emotional, so you need to have enough energy and uh, just uh, you, you know, a, a courageous spirit before you have this conversation. So make sure it's the right time and place. And finally, choose your words carefully. Words are so powerful, so potent. Jesus' words were very tender to this woman. He said, who has condemned you, he said. And she said, well, no, nobody has. They've all left. And then Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. That's love. But then he said, now go and stop sinning. That's truth. I mean, he could have said, you tramp. You've made such idiotic choices. You deserve what you get. How can you live with yourself? 
when I'm needing to confront poor behavior, I'm tempted to be very direct. And sometimes you have to be direct. But usually it's better to soften your language instead of saying something like, how come you're always late? Maybe you could say, I've noticed you've been coming in late. Is something wrong that I don't know about? See how soft that is? Instead of saying, it's clear that you've been lying. Maybe you could say, it seems like your facts are off. I know that seems, you know, weird. But is there a reason for that, you could say? Instead of saying, and by the way, exaggerations are never helpful. So if you, ha if you tend to say, you always screw it up. You never come through. You are just like your mother, which is never helpful, I've learned. And she might be like her mother in many ways, but it's just a bit of an exaggeration to say you're just like your mother. Some of you are like, Bob, I've tried all that. I've spoke the truth and love, prayed about it, wrote it down, got advice, chose my words carefully, and the thing still blew up. The person stormed out, told me I was an idiot, now everybody's mad, I feel terrible. Well, remember what happened to Jesus when he told these Pharisees that they were a bunch of hypocrites? They did not say, oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for revealing this truth about us. We didn't know that we were a bunch of hypocrites. How can we thank you for telling us? No, they wanted to kill him. That's because you can't control how somebody's going to respond. So key. You can't control how somebody's going to respond to the truth. All you can do and all you must do is tell the truth in the most loving way possible and then let the chips fall got to tell the truth. Henry Cloud says this, truth is always your guide. It's always your guide. If something's wrong, be truthful. God will honor it. Doesn't matter how they respond. You have got to be truthful, no matter how hard it is for this person to hear. Gang, our job is to be truthful and then just let it play out. Because if you tell the truth in love, you just might save someone's marriage. You might end someone's addiction. You might heal a family. You might make someone a better leader. Your and my job is to tell the truth in the most loving way possible. I, I've mentioned this before. It's been a while, but when our son Dave was 19, he, he lived in a house off campus with six other guys and early in the year, I began hearing rumors that there were some big parties at this house, a lot of underage drinking. And it would have been so easy for me to say, you know, that's what guys do. And just kind of let it slide. Last thing I wanted to do also was to embarrass my son, but I thought, you know, this is way too important. I need to have a crucial conversation. So one Saturday morning, I went over to this house unannounced, and I never did that. 
But I did that Saturday, I walked into the garage, I saw the cans and bottles in the garbage can. I knocked on the door and Dave's roommate answered and I said, is, is Dave home? He said, yeah, he's in studying in his room. So I let myself in, I walked over to his room and he was shocked to see his dad standing there. I said, Dave, can I talk to you about something? He said, what's up? I sat down in his bed. I told him what I had heard. He said it was all true. But it was mainly two of his housemates who had invited a bunch of their high school friends over and that he was not involved. And my son's an honest kid. I said, Dave, I believe you. I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. You're an adult now. But could I give you my perspective on this? He said, sure. I said, first, these guys are underage. If something wrong happens, you could be liable. Second, word is out that this is a party house. And your whole reputation is at stake. But I said, really, Dave, for me, it all comes down to influence. I said, the reason I never drank is I never wanted to put you kids at risk. I've always wanted to have the most positive influence I could have on my family. You never had to worry about addiction. You never had to worry about abuse. You never had to worry about where your mom and dad were. I said, biblically, it's not wrong to have a beer, a glass of wine, but it's all about influence for me. I said, again, Dave, it's your life. You're going to do what you're going to do. But as your dad, I just love you too much not to bring it up. I gave him a hug, told him I loved him, and that was the end of it. No kidding, a few months later, I heard that they had started a Bible study in that house, and they were now confronting purity and drinking issues. In fact, David told me on the phone last night, he said, Dad, you undersold that to the church last night. He said, this house did a 180. We started having worship services on Saturday night at our house. 40, 50, 60 students would come, and we would sing and pray. And five of those six kids are church-going kids. They're doing great. One is still struggling. That conversation was a turning point for that whole house. And I didn't want to do it. But gang, if your child starts heading down a dangerous path, you can't go silent. You gotta find the courage. And you might make some mistakes and say some things you shouldn't, but you gotta move in. If your friends start slipping away from God and church, what would love and truth require of you. If your married coworker is dangerously close to falling into an affair, you gotta speak up. If you care at all about that person's life, you will find the courage to have a crucial conversation. You'll make a wise judgment. You'll affirm the relationship. You'll choose your timing and words carefully, and it won't be perfect but maybe with God's help, you can continue to be perfect together, imperfect.
together, just like my gloves. I love you people. I want your lives to go well. And I pray that God will give all of us the courage to speak truth in the most loving way possible. Let me just pray for everybody. Just stay seated and we'll be dismissed. God, thank you so much for this amazing church, this gift that you've given all of us. I pray that you'll give each one of us the courage and wisdom to learn how to do this. Because every single one of us, many of us are needing to have a conversation right now. If not now, someday we will. So God, we need your help and your strength. Help us to always stand on truth. Tell the truth. And I know you'll honor that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Have a great day, everybody. It's been great to be with all of you. God bless.